Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. Julie Henrik is the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I'm delighted to welcome Peggy Earhart to the podcast today. Peggy is a former English professor with a doctorate in medieval literature. Her Max Maxwell Mysteries, Sweet Man is Gone, and Got No More Friend Anyhow were published by Five Star Gale, Senage, and featured a blues singer sleuth. Peggy is currently writing the Knit and Nibble Mysteries for Kensington. Her amateur sleuth, Pamela Patterson, is the founder and mainstay of the Aberville, New Jersey Knitting Club, nicknamed Knit and Nibble. Knit and Nibble number nine, we'll say that fast three times, Irish Knit Murder was a March 2023 release. Knit and Nibble number 10, Knitmare on Beach Street will appear in December 2023 and Murder Most Irish will appear next spring in Kensington's 2024 St. Patrick's Day novella anthology, Irish Milkshake Murder. Boy, those are some tongue twisters. Peggy, welcome to the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I'm going to start this conversation the way uh, I always start this conversation. When did you say to yourself, I want to write a book? Oh, I I didn't expect that. I expected, uh, what was your question? How did you start writing? I guess I said to myself, I want to write a book sometime when I was in graduate school. Yes because I was doing academic research and I was writing some uh, publishable scholarly articles, which was exciting. But the next step is always, we must have the book. Mm -hmm. So I think it was then. So that would have been in the 1970s. And I did write that book. It was a wonderfully fun project for which I got a research grant that let me go study at the British Museum in London for a summer. It was about the judgment of Paris myth, the myth about how Paris, the Trojan prince, uh, chose Helen of Troy, who didn't become Helen of Troy until he stole her from her Greek husband. And that was what launched the Trojan War, which is, of course, known to all from Homer's epics. Mm -hmm. And I studied the way that myth was uh, interpreted in the Middle Ages. And surprisingly, it was very popular. It's a wonderful story, of course, but it also for them had some moral resonance mm-hmm. because Paris's lust for this woman was what caused the destruction of his kingdom. Mm-hmm. So that was my book, and it was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, which was thrilling to get such a good publisher. And then almost as soon as that came out, which was 1987, I said to myself, I want to do something more creative. And I had already, I had always read mystery novels in grad school as a relaxation from the more tedious and sort of academic readings that I was doing. So over Christmas break in about 1988, I wrote uh, an entire novel, wow. a, a mystery novel. I just was possessed. I think 
the plot had been percolating in my mind, probably unconsciously for years and years, and it all just came pouring out. And it was one of those academic mysteries that were very popular for a while. The mm-hmm. Amanda Cross, for example, yeah, did them. So it was, it's because I think a lot of academics were writing them and reading them. And so, of course, they were setting them in their own world. And that's what mine was. A professor was the sleuth. A professor was the victim. Professors were the suspects. And... Amazingly, I got an agent for it right away, but she was not able to sell it. So that's, you know, first I thought, this is magical. I wrote this thing over Christmas break, and now I've got an agent, and she likes it. But she felt that right at that time, the market was beginning to shift because she said, you know, if I'd had this a year earlier, I know the editors I could have sold it to, Mm -hmm. and now they're all looking for something different. So that was discouraging. But yes. To answer the original question, I think I decided I wanted to write a book when I was in graduate school. And then I, then I was a professor when I actually wrote the mystery novel. So I love this story for a lot of reasons, because um, that's quite the quite the break, <laughs> writing a, a novel. But did you, having been an academic writer... Um, but loving mysteries, did you have to unlearn things or, you know, writing that first novel, I'm sure taught you a lot, but, but, you know, did you have to build your craft in different ways? I think I had read so many of them, mysteries, mm-hmm. that I had unconsciously absorbed the structure, the victim, the killer, the mm-hmm. suspects, even in that, which I just sat down with no outline or anything. I just sat down and wrote it, but it had that structure. It Mm -hmm. started with my professor sleuth finding a body in the river that bisected her campus. And the body turned out to be her fellow professor. And I had all kinds of suspects. I think I had five suspects, Mm -hmm. including a man who did the sort of gardening on the campus. And I gave him a reason that he would want her to be dead and of course I had a sort of a lover's triangle that was one of the suspects oh all kinds of suspects and they just came kind of flowing out of my mind so no I guess I didn't have to unlearn and I've always been a reader starting I think with being born nearsighted and the only thing I could see was pages of a book and I think by second grade I just somehow knew how to read Mm -hmm. and that was almost all I did And to the point that my mother thought I had some affliction because all I did was read and she actually complained about it, which is (laughs) strange these days to think a parent would complain that a child was too much of a bookworm. (laughs) But I had a huge vocabulary because I just read anything and everything I could find. And I think I internalized the rhythms of uh, literary prose, mm-hmm. uh, not overly complex, but flowing and getting your point across. Have you taken writing classes or writing workshops at all? Um, it, or, you know, again, you're an academic, so you've, you've been um, steeped in that culture for a long time. But but did you, you know, take writing courses? I just took one and it was really not good at all. Looking back, I, I won't say who the teacher was because that would be mean, but I don't think she actually knew very much. 
It was something that was sponsored by my local Mystery Writers of America chapter. Mm -hmm. And it, as I said, was not helpful. The thing that I did find helpful was there's a classic old book called Writing the Modern Mystery by Barbara Norville. And it's about 40 years old. So the modern mystery, <laughs> the modern mystery was modern 40 years ago. But she was a literary agent, I think, based in Brooklyn. She's probably long gone at this point. But it was extremely useful because it it laid out this the structure of the classic traditional mystery. And so that crystallized for me what I think I had already internalized, the victim, the killer, the suspects, the puzzle, right. et cetera. And then I also, being a kind of a analytical person, I outlined probably about 20 or 25 mysteries that I thought were good. I would read the mystery mm -hmm. and I would outline it just as if I was doing a research project. What happens in the first chapter? Who are the suspects? What are their motives? And I've, I've recycled all of that paper at this point. But at one time I had a whole file drawer full of these things, literally just feet if I were yeah. to pile the pages up. Well, a couple feet at least of these handwritten notes that I had made outlining these mysteries. That's a tremendously um, helpful tip, I think, for folks. Um, and I, you know, I talk about this sometimes with other people, but reading as a writer, so reading as a reader, you enjoy it and hopefully are lost in the mystery. But then going back and reading as a writer and um, and critically reading, you know, what works, what didn't work, how did they do this? Um, that's a lot of that's a wonderful way to learn. Um, and were there novels that you did this outline for that didn't work for you? And was that as helpful as as the books that that really spoke to you and that you loved? I think I only picked ones that I had already read as a reader and enjoyed. Okay. So I, these were ones that I thought were effective because I had read them and I had enjoyed them. And I said to myself, I read it, I enjoyed it, I thought it was effective. What technically is going on here that mm -hmm. made it effective? And were you always drawn to the traditional mystery? I mean, was there ever a time that you thought suspense or thriller or some other type of, of crime novel? No, no, I like the puzzle. And I like, it, at one time, they really were the province of, of educated people. If you think of like G.K. Chesterton, for example, writing the Father Brown mysteries and Amanda Cross, whose name wasn't really Amanda Cross, but I think Carolyn Heilbrunn or something. Yeah. She was a professor at Columbia. It was It was a kind of an academic person's uh, relaxation to to read them and and academic people wrote them and so it it was it was intellectual the puzzle of it and I mean sometimes to the point that they're quite ludicrous when you look at what some of these clues are someone having to solve a literary I'll just make something up but having to solve a literary puzzle that involves knowing Latin for example right, right. and P.D. James, even, in that an unsuitable job for a woman. I think that one of the clues is hidden in a, a, a the Book of Common Prayer, the uh, Episcopal, uh, uh, you know, prayer book. And the clue involves someone's blood type, but rendered in code. So <laughs> in real life, 
that would never be a real clue. And if it was, the police, I don't believe, would figure it out. <laughs> but that was so characteristic of that style mm -hmm. and um, a lot of fun to, to have these puzzles that the detective solves because perhaps the detective is uh, intimately acquainted with everything that Shakespeare ever wrote and recognizes that allusion. Or we've got the Oedipus myth underlying this particular crime. They are fun. I always think of Dorothy L. Sayers as well when I, I think about those novels. Absolutely. She, and she, you know, I mean, Gaudi Knight is one of the, you know, best of her books, but there are a couple Absolutely. that um, are so obscure that you're just along for the ride and trust that Peter Wimsey will explain it to you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so the puzzle mystery for you then morphed into uh, your most recent series, which is Cozy, which is also, you know, there are all sorts of cozy mysteries, um, and uh, you know, but they have a traditional root. Um, sometimes they aren't as much of a puzzle as others, but yours are. How did that evolve for you into, into your current series? Well, to begin, I was recruited to write this, which was probably the most thrilling thing that ever could happen to a writer. I truly had almost given up on getting a, an agent and, and a publisher. After I did the five-star books, the first one came out in 2008, mm -hmm. and the second one came out in 2011. And that was a five-star, which I don't think even does mysteries anymore. They don't. And they accept unagented submissions. And so I was able to sell those to Five Star with, with no agent, but the circulation is very small for those and bookstores don't like to carry them because they're expensive, they're, they're library binding, which makes them expensive. I think at one point Five Star almost had even subscriptions from libraries where the library would buy for their mystery collection, sort of every current Five Star book. So they just, the print run is small, they're hard to sell. And I was just determined that I was going to come up with something that I could find an agent for. And so I was verging toward Cozy. I had a whole project that I actually wrote two manuscripts and my sleuth was going to be somehow involved with building houses and it was going to be houses with history and there would be an old, mystery baby bones in the basement or something that intersected with a new mystery. And I absolutely could not get an agent interested in those. And I probably queried about a hundred agents. And I thought, you know, I've done what I could. I think this is a marketable in the cozy style and nobody wants it. Mm -hmm. And then magically I was contacted by Evan Marshall, who is now my agent. And he had read or seen at least parts of my blues mysteries, The Sweet Man is Gone and the other one. And so he knew my writing style and he could see that, yes, I could write like a literate human. And he sells a lot of books to Kensington, mm -hmm. to John Sconemilio, who is my editor at Kensington. And John Sconemilio was looking for a knitting mystery. And so agent... Uh, Evan was looking around to recruit someone who wanted to write a knitting mystery. 
And you might say to yourself, aren't there a lot of knitting mysteries out there already, which there are probably about 10 writers writing knitting mysteries at this point. And so I said, aren't there a lot of knitting mysteries? And Evan said, yes, there are. This would be a knitting club, uh, which is a little bit different. But moreover, if people like knitting mysteries, they're going to like another one. Yeah. So that was what created the knit and nibble concept. It's the club. And they uh, meet once a week. They always have a dessert cooked by the person who is hosting. So I got the idea, since it's a club, it can involve food too. And everyone likes food. There are a lot of cozies that are totally focused on food. So that's where knit and nibble came from. And so I wrote up a proposal and Evan liked it and John liked it. And we were off and running. But the way I work the puzzle into those is that I try to make the clues involve yarn or something to do with knitting or knitting patterns or, or something, or even just something involving uh, textile crafts. My sleuth, Pamela, is uh, in her 40s. She's a widow. She has a daughter in college. She has a work-from-home job, which she had even before work-from-home. She's an associate editor of a magazine called Fibercraft. And so she's always reading articles that are submitted for a publication and deciding is this to be published or not. And then she sometimes does copy editing. So she's constantly being exposed to fiber, yarn, knitting, craft-related articles. And so sometimes I have the last clue that really brings the puzzle together in her mind spring from one of these articles she's Mm -hmm. read. And that enables her to pull together these sort of scattered puzzle pieces and see, oh, here's the the picture. And this is the the puzzle piece that completes the puzzle. So I, I do have a lot of those kinds of puzzles, which are as outlandish as the ones we were talking about with the <laughs> older traditional mysteries. But uh, people seem to think it's fun. Well, and I'd love to unpack some of this because let's t- start with um, an agent reaching out to you. Uh, had you queried him before? You know, I probably had. I, that's the funny thing. It's, I think at some point I probably queried every agent in the on earth, at least <laughs> in English speaking agents. I sent so many queries out over the years with so many of my projects. So yes, I had probably queried him, but I that that isn't what led him to me. He was referred to me by another writer yeah. who knows me. He uh, she was working on some cozies for Kensington. She's, I don't believe, is with Kensington any longer, but she was, and he was her agent. And so I believe he was asking some of his other writers, do you know a writer that could be interested in this, that you could refer me to? And and I think then he went to my website, Mm -hmm. which at that time was focused on the Sweet Man is Gone and the other one. And Mm -hmm. I had... I believe I had the first chapter of each one up there. And I believe that he he read some of my material on my website. And then he emailed me and said, 
are you interested in this? And I knew it was legit because I knew who he was. I think I even met him at a conference once. Yeah. And, and it was the referral from someone I knew. And so I knew, yes, he is a real agent. And I, I also knew that agents do this because yeah. uh, eventually we're going to get around to Sisters in Crime. <laughs> and I have a lot of friends I've met through Sisters in Crime. And some of them got their break when an agent reached out to them. Yeah through similar approaches. And, and often we're looking for a uh, mystery in this style. And you have queried me in the past with things that were similar, or you have something, a short story out or something. But I knew that this was a possible thing that an agent could reach out to you. Yeah, I, I, I we could always talk about Sisters in Crime. I always love talking about it. But, you know, just to let folks know about the importance of building your community and getting to know other writers and everything else. I think this is such a great illustration of what that can do, because when an agent is looking for somebody to pitch a series and that has happened before um they're looking for somebody they can work with i mean it's not just somebody who writes well but somebody they can work with and so a personal referral having met at a conference you know someplace a conversation those are all part of it um and so I, I I love this story and i've heard it before um from other folks and 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 to a degree, lived it myself. Um, uh, it's just a, uh, it's such an important thing to let people know that building community and building a network and getting to know other writers and being happy for those writers when they get their contracts um, is, is part of what makes this a wonderful journey. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's the networking. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. Um, and so when did the first Knit and Nibble um, book come out? 2018. I had the contact with Evan Marshall in 2016. Mm -hmm. And I wrote the book, start the first book, which was Murder, She Knit, which was Chansko and Emilio's idea for title. And it's wonderful. <laughs> Murder, She Knit. I wrote it in 2016. And then the whole production process takes about a year, really, from submission to, mm -hmm. well, acceptance to publication. And so 2017, it was in process of being produced, and it came out in 2018. Mm -hmm. um, and but since then... Um, your, your number nine is coming. Yeah, I've been busy. I yeah. had a lot of pent up energies there. Yes. <laughs> and um, writing two a year, writing one a year. I mean, how's that? How's, how's the pace on that? It's sort of two a year. Yeah. And then the, the one thing you mentioned that that's coming out, the Irish milkshake murder, it, Kensington does these anthologies, mm -hmm. a, a collection anthology, uh, with three novellas, often themed to holidays. I've mm -hmm. already been in two of the Christmas ones, mm -hmm. Christmas Scarf Murder and Christmas Card Murder. The novellas are about a third as long as a book, so about 25,000 to 30,000 words. Mm -hmm. So. 
I think last year I did one full-length book and one novella, but I have in the past done two full-length books in a year. And yeah. Yeah. And uh, the the one I'm working at, well, now I just got a contract to write number 11 and number 12 of Knit and Nibble as well as a, another novella, Easter Egg Murders. Uh, the deadline for that is so far in the future that I almost feel like Joe Biden, you know, should I commit to these things when I know how old I'm going to be when they come to fruition? <laughs> but but I'm, I'm very soon going to start writing uh, Knit and Nibble number 11, mm-hmm. which is the, the deadline is November 1st to uh, turn it in. So I will give myself about six or seven months for that. And Kensington with these, I have a couple of friends who've um, done those anthologies as well. There are three uh, novellas around, as you said, a holiday theme um, and with your characters generally, but can take, you know, you can try to get it in the timeline or it can be an extra story. I mean, there's there's some thought thinking that needs to come. And usually Kensington will also um, put them out as a standalone novella and, you know, they card back to paperback. I mean, it's a really interesting model that seems to work well for them. Yes, the Christmas card murder. My my uh, novella was called Death of a Christmas Card Crafter. They put that out as an e-book novella on its yeah. own. And I don't yeah. know how it's doing, but so yeah. far that has been the only uh, spinoff like that that I know of for the novellas. Yeah, and Irish milkshakes and Christmas cards and Christmas scarves. <laughs> <laughs> yes, what's not to like? What's not to like? Um, so yeah. you, you know, what kept you going? You said that you'd almost given up and then this opportunity came up. Um, but you also wrote your first novel in, you know, you said the late 80s and then were published by Five Star in 2008. So what did you, had you in between those two times, had you kept writing mysteries or was that your outlining part? You know, have you always been writing even when publication wasn't um, happening? Yes, I've always been writing. I have piles of unpublished things in my office. I wrote one (laughs) that had a young man as a sleuth that was I was I I play the guitar and that's I was in a a couple bands really and so I thought it would be fun to set a story in that world and that's where Sweet Man is Gone came from that with my sleuth who was I made her a singer instead of a guitar player because the chick is always the singer usually but I thought I'll I'll make her the singer because I would like to be a singer but I have no voice so before I got onto the idea of having the woman singer sleuth I wrote a couple of mysteries set in this blues band world with rehearsal studios in Manhattan and grungy gigs and all sorts of things with a young man who was an amateur sleuth. And I liked him a lot. Uh, Men who read it said that he was the most unrealistic man they ever (laughs) could imagine. And women who read it said they really liked him. So (laughs) that shows you what women really like. (laughs) But those really went nowhere. But I just kept charging along with them. 
Um, yes, they were amateur sleuth mysteries, and he was trying to solve crimes set in this world of bands and dead guitar players and things. And um, when you, uh, so you had, uh, you know, these days we call an authenticity reader, a sensitivity reader who is a man who said, this is an unrealistic sleuth. Did you then say, okay, I need to change this so that it's a female sleuth, so that it's, it's you know, it passes the test? Or did you keep writing this um, this series and uh, and just hope that it hit a chord with folks? Well, it was before the days of sensitivity readers. And yeah. actually the person who read it was my guitar teacher. And I just thought he would think it was funny. And he liked a lot of it, but he just thought the man was unrealistic. But um, I guess that, that was what led me to think, okay, I'll, I'll have a woman sleuth. Yeah. They, they were written in the first person as well. And so it was not only a male sleuth, but it was as if it was the voice of a male talking yeah. in the books. It was a first person narrative. And so I suppose that's what led me to think, all right, let's make it a woman, yeah. a first person narrator who is a woman and perhaps I'll be able to do something that's more appealing. Yeah. And, and eventually, yes, I did get a publisher for, for the first one of those. That, yeah. that Sweet Man is Gone was the first one I did with the woman, yeah. sleuth, narrator. And I said I sold to Five Star. Um, and what I, I also love to hear from you and what I want to echo is that you keep writing. So writing and publishing are two different journeys. So even when the publishing journey was frustrating and, and, you know, not, not as fortuitous as you wanted, um, you kept writing and you kept, you kept that part of your creativity going. What does writing mean to you as far as expression and, and part of who you are? I think creating people i suppose and and yeah creating people and creating a world and it, the guitar ones the the blues band ones it, that's a sort of a funny interesting world of these people and that world is really over now the those all the blues bars that used to be in manhattan are just gone it's it's not at all like it was at one time yeah. but it was a, such a captivating world. And I thought, I, I want to express this. I want to tell people about it. I want to bring it to life for people who have never sat in a bar at 1 a.m. listening to a guitar player that just sent chills down your spine, et cetera. Yeah. And yeah. with the knit and nibble ones, it's, well, just sort of an ode, I guess, to to suburbia. <laughs> they're they're so suburban, and the idea of the charming town and the almost a Jane Austen approach to everyone as a character. Mm -hmm. They don't realize how funny they are to an outsider. They have each one has their little obsession. It just seems to them that this is the most important thing in the world. You know, having their their wardrobe or complaining about the taxes or the fact that the town spends too much money on the Easter egg hunt every year, things like that. I love that, the Jane Austen approach. That that um, is such a great descriptor for what these are, because they are, you know, 
quibbles about small things that actually matter um, to the characters and from the outside can seem not important, but they are. I mean, that's that's part of the joy. Well, yes, I think she's the she's the godmother of the modern cozy mystery. Yeah, I I I love that. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I do love that. That's a <laughs> what a good godmother for us all. Um, What's your favorite piece of writing advice that you give folks who are working on their novels? Oh, it's to just keep writing. That well, and that idea of find, figure out what your genre is and understand it. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. People often don't exactly know how genre-driven if they want to get published. I mean, if they just want to write something and self-publish, they should do whatever they want. But a person who really wants to get published has to be realistic about the fact that there are very set genres and editors, agents, and readers, most importantly, expect a certain something if they pick up a book they think is in a certain genre. So know your genre Mm -hmm. and understand it and read and study examples of it, of that genre that you think are effective and try to figure out what that writer did that made it effective and just keep writing, uh, write, even set yourself in a schedule. Even if you just say, I'm going to write one page every day, do, do something, don't let it go too long or it'll, it will slip away and then you'll just wander away from it and it'll be over. Both great pieces of advice. I mean, writing is a muscle that needs to be exercised. Um, And again, don't try to write 500 words a day if that's not possible. I mean, a page a day may feel more possible. Um, And I, I love the genre advice to understand it. And I would argue also to like the genre that you're writing in. Um, <laughs> you have to like it, of right? course. Yes, yes, I never, I, I didn't necessarily think of myself as a cozy writer until I was recruited by Evan. But then I realized Jane Austen is a cozy writer and I love mm-hmm. Jane Austen mm-hmm. and I can approach it f- from that point of view, the the world that is created and the characters Mm -hmm. and the way the characters interact. So that was kind of a foot in the door for me with that genre. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's uh, and, and, and there are tropes within all of these genres, but certainly within cozies, there's a um, expectation from the readers that you need to, um, you need to meet. Otherwise they won't buy your books. I mean, they're, they're Mm -hmm. pretty, tough audience yes yeah yeah and trust um so you're working on you you're continuing this series which is wonderful um and have have uh contracts which is also a wonderful thing uh have you thought about writing a second series or writing a standalone or writing something else well I I don't want to talk too much about this at the moment, but Kensington has approached me about another series, and I'm thinking about that. But I also, in the back of my mind, I I would love to write a standalone set in the world that I grew up in, which was Southern California, the San Fernando Valley, when it was still almost like Little House on the Prairie. My father built the first house we lived in, and it had two rooms. 
he literally built it with his own hands on a piece of land that had been a truck farm. And next to us was a big onion field. The street we lived on was not paved for a long time. People rode around on horses. We had a neighbor who lived in a, a very old house, probably one of the first houses on the street. It was an older couple, Leo and Edith Whistler, and they had a young daughter. And this mysterious person that would visit, whose name was Aunt Tootsie. And one almost thought perhaps Aunt Tootsie was the real mother of the girl and had somehow, you know, had her out of wedlock. Mm -hmm. And it was all very mysterious. Nancy was the same age as I was, and she was my friend, Nancy Whistler. But in my mind, there's a murder somewhere, somehow. <laughs> perhaps involving Aunt Tootsie and Hollywood, yeah. which was just over the hill there. And wow. sometimes I think about that, that that, that would be really uh, fun to write, to bring that world to life, but from the point of view of this child who doesn't exactly understand things, but adults talk about weird goings on and here's yeah. her friend and maybe she disappears and then she comes back or whatever. I love that. So this germ of an idea is 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 patching in your brain. Yeah. <laughs> so you've been a member of Sisters in Crime for a long time. What has the organization meant to you as far as your your writing journey? Well, we talked a little bit about that, the networking, of course, and belonging to Sisters in Crime as well as Mystery Writers of America. I really wouldn't have had a clue of how to go about looking for an agent or even what do you submit to an agent? Um, mm -hmm. You know, the three chapters and an outline, just the, the stuff that is now so commonplace. But I really had no idea about that at the beginning. And it, I don't think anybody could could really do this. They they might be sitting around thinking, oh, I'm, I really would like to write a novel. I would like to have an agent. I would like to get published. But without this very specific guidance, I think it's almost hopeless. Well, it's, and it's a, you know, even in the time since you first got published to now, it's, it's changed so much and the publishing industry has changed so much. And, um, and I think it's important to understand those changes. And if you're indie published, you're doing it all on your own. If you're traditionally published, you still have a role to play in the marketing and everything else. But um, book proposals are something that we don't I, you know, I didn't know anything about until I, I, you know, sort of explored it with Sisters in Crime. It's a lot to learn. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. But how lucky are we that we learned it? <laughs> well, yes. And I was recruited to Sisters in Crime. In fact, I, I joined Mystery Writers of America first. And I learned about them because I went to a, a writing what was it even a conference, I guess, but it was not just for mystery writers. It was just, and it was at Rutgers, I think, um, Rutgers University, which is not that far from where I live. And somehow I saw advertisement for this or a flyer at my library or something. And so I went there and I, it, this probably even was 
after I, I wrote that one for which I got the agent, because getting the agent for that was just kind of a magical fluke. I got a referral to an agent from someone at the publisher that had published my academic book. And I just sent something off and that was that, but I didn't do it very methodically. And then I saw this flyer for this thing at Rutgers and I drove down there and there was a talk, I think um, Carolyn Wheat, the mystery writer, Carolyn Wheat Mm -hmm. was there. And um, there was a particular you know, it was not focused on mysteries, but in the sort of menu of talks you could go to, there was this mystery talk. And I thought, well, I, I'll go to that. And she said, among other things, you should join, everyone here should join Mystery Writers of America if they're really interested in trying to develop a mystery writing career for themselves. So I thought, okay, I will do that. And I did. And I started going to this MWA meetings. And there I met some women who were also in Sisters in Crime. And they uh, recruited me for for the local Sisters in Crime chapter. Yeah. But otherwise, so it was just the flyer, the conference, MWA, Sisters in Crime. Yeah. Yeah. Finding finding your people and finding connections and and getting yourself out there is such an important thing. Um, But also, as you've you've shown us uh, in this conversation, persisting is incredibly important. Very, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for a wonderful conversation, Peggy, and congratulations on, you know, the continued success. And I wish you luck finding ways to kill people with milkshakes and Easter eggs. And (laughs) Oh, no. Now I'm going to do it with an Easter egg, but that's in the future like i said <laughs> there you come the um, deadline for that is so far in the future i have a lot of time to think about that well hopefully like your sleuth you'll be reading an article somewhere and something will pop up and make all the sense in the world <laughs> yes uh, i hope so well thank you so much for being on the podcast well thank you julie it was fun thank you for being with us today Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.